you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn it to John chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's about 10 of them on that back table. Don't leave here without one, okay? That's our gift to you, so grab one. Those are for you. Um, but it'd be good to have the, the text in front of you. Listen, I, today is like the best day in the world to be a pastor, um, Today is like the day when, um, today's like being a doctor when you come into the room and say the cancer's gone. Today is, today is like, um, today's like being, being, um, the head of a search party who comes in and says, we found your child. It is the greatest day ever. And I am here to tell you that, that he is risen. And it is a day that changes everything. Look, one, one ancient Christian by the name of St. Augustine, that's Augustine, Augustine is in Florida, Augustine is in heaven, okay? So St. Augustine uh, once said that Christians are an Easter people, and this is because we are a people changed by a new reality, a reality that burst onto the world 2,000 years ago. Christians rightly focus on the cross, but can I tell you that without the resurrection, the death of Jesus is just that. It is a death. It is a a tragic side note on history. And look, some of us in this room believe just that, right? But that's exactly what it was. It was just a tragic side note. But as Christians, we believe and trust not just in the death of Jesus, but in his glorious resurrection. And so this morning, um, we look at one of the accounts. There are four of them. There are four accounts of Christ's resurrection. We look at one of them uh, to, to see what what it was like for the people first learning of Jesus' resurrection. Because like I said before, you see, that day everything changed. Everything changed. This is a story that begins in the dark of one reality and begins in the dawn of another. So if you have your place in John chapter 20, I'd I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here. So we stand on the authority of the word preached. We will be reading uh, verses 1 to 18. And as we do, friends, let's be mindful. This is God's Word. He gave it. He inspired it. Which means He breathed it out. It is not from the imaginings of of men or women. It It is the truth of God. Hear it in that way. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still yet dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Now, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look or stooped to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there with the, the bo- where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But instead, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Friends, this is God's word. It is given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord and giver of life, Lord Holy Spirit, we do not need to call you into our presence. You called us into yours. But what we do ask now is that you would work on us to soften our hearts, to open our ears, and to preach the gospel of Jesus to us so that we might trust in him. You alone can do this. You are the one who gives faith. And so we ask that you would do it in all of us that are here this morning. And we pray, O Lord, that that as your gospel is preached, we might respond to it. Lord, give us the joy that was the joy of Mary at seeing her resurrected Lord. Lord, let, let Christ and his cross come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the, to the wayside, Lord, because you alone hold the words of eternal life. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, let's be honest. Like all things we associate with religion, and we associate many things with religion here in this country, but like all things we associate with religion, we have tamed the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we have many reasons for that. For, for some of us here, we, we sentimentalize that, that death and resurrection because, quite frankly, we just don't believe it's possible. Right? If that's you here this morning, I'm, I'm glad you're here. And, I mean, let's be honest. It, it is a little crazy, right? I mean, how primitive do you have to believe to, to be to, to believe that someone can actually rise from the dead? For others of us, the idea of Jesus hanging on a cross and dying, um, having a spear driven into his side and, and gushing blood, um, it evokes images of like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. We're like, that is too gruesome for good religious company, right? We're nice people. We don't talk about such things. Um, for still others of us, though, it's neither of those reasons. For others of us, it's familiarity. The idea of Jesus dying and rising from the dead is something that has just become so familiar to us that it, it has taken on the fuzzy corners of a dream. You know what I mean by that? Like the edges of the picture just kind of yeah, fuzzy and it just seems so ethereal and cute. This morning, what I would ask all of us is to attempt to attempt to enter into this story on its own terms. Now, that is not to say to leave your questions at this door, at the door, because I believe that this story invites your questions. As a matter of fact, for, for those of us that have them, can I tell you, I think this story actually asks them for you. Um, instead, what I mean is that let's all try to hear it without assumptions of what it must be. Because what we will find is a story that begins in confusion, in grief, and in loneliness, but ends in understanding, in joy, and in reconciliation. 
We're going to look at this text in three ways this morning. If you're new to Holy Cross, we have outlines in the bulletin to help you follow along if that's helpful. We're going to look at the dark of Friday. Oh, sorry, we're going to only look in two ways. What am I thinking? I'm on autopilot here. We're going to look at the dark of Friday, and then finally we're going to look at the light of Sunday. Why? Because, friends, Jesus is risen. The night has passed, and the new day has dawned. Let's get right into the text, okay? Let's start in the dark with confusion. Look down at verses 1 to 10 if you can. John is very clear in this passage with the details here, right? Uh, Mary Magdalene, who was one of the women who had been following Jesus, some of you know this, but Jesus had, had 12 men that he had gathered around himself that were called his apostles, right? One of them was named Judas Iscariot. He's the one who actually betrayed Jesus. But apart from those 12 guys, there were other people who followed him as well, as, as, in, in addition to like a group of women um, who, who were ones who, who went along with, uh, listened to Jesus, sat at his feet, learned from him. Um, and they, they were with him for, that, for a similar amount of time. Okay? Mary Magdalene was one of them. And when, when Jesus died and was buried, um, uh, the other gospel writers will tell us that Mary Magdalene was one of a few people who actually was there to see the tomb in which he was laid. Okay? He, she was there. So she sat opposite the tomb and watched it. So let me, let me just note a couple of things here, right? Mary Magdalene goes early in the morning on the first day of the week. There's, there's tons loaded just in that statement that we can't get to. But on the first day of the week, she goes. The first day of the week, for those of us, it's not Monday, right? It's Sunday. Sunday's the first day of the week. Um, she goes on the first day of the week early in the morning while it's still dark to the tomb. Now, one thing before we get to the story itself. I don't know if we take this for granted. Christianity is insanely interested in history, right? Now, we, you and I are used to reading accounts of, like this with, with a lot of details, right? Because we're used to reading novels, and novels have tons of details, and sometimes we even read like historical stuff, and that has tons of detail in it. In the ancient world, no accounts, no stories had details like this, except the accounts of eyewitness testimony. In the ancient world, you didn't add details in like this because the details didn't matter, especially if you were talking about religious things. Because everyone knows religion doesn't really matter about what happens in the real world, right? Because religion's about something else. Well, not Christianity. Christianity is intimately interested in the accounts of history. Details to this degree where, where someone is giving you the person that was there, the time they were there, what it looked like while they were there. We'll, we'll get further into little details like the fact that a cloth that was on his face was folded and put off to the side. It wasn't with everything else. It was somewhere else. Or details like, yeah, but, you know, we both started together, but I outran the dude. You know, like those are details that we go, yeah, that's normal. It was not normal in the first century. This is what you would give if you were someone who was testifying in a court of law. This is eyewitness testimony. Christianity is overly concerned with history. Other religions, other philosophies are concerned with teachings, but Christianity is concerned primarily with what happened in the world. Okay? Let's keep going. She gets to the tomb. She sees the stone lifted away from the tomb and runs to Peter and John and says, they've taken the Lord from the tomb. I don't know where they put him. Do you notice the confusion? Like, she doesn't even hang out to see what happened. She walks up, and she's like, uh, and turns around and runs. She's like, 
I don't know what happened. She'll say it later. I don't know. John says of him and Peter, right? And if, if you don't know, like Peter is like the head of the apostles. He's the dude. He's the guy who's constantly talking. When Jesus asks a question, he'll just start talking. Sometimes he's saying foolish things, but he just starts talking. They are the, the prime, they're they part of the three dudes that were like Jesus' inner circle. So they get there and John said, even we didn't know what was going on. We looked in and we're like, oh, uh, now what? They don't get it. And it's for good reason. Look, when we think tomb, some of us are thinking like, um, if you go up the road here, right? Thorn Road Cemetery is on your left. If you hang a left on, on Beverly and look out, there's these mausoleums. Actually, really cool looking. Uh, but they're mausoleums. That's what we think of tombs. Tombs in the ancient world. Tombs in first century Israel and Palestine were, were caves. They were large caves. And you would, in front of the cave, there would be a stone. And what I mean by a stone is not like a, like a rock. I mean like a stone. And the way you would get it there is they would, they would have a, a, a trench cut in the ground right in front of the cave that would roll up a hill. And so when you wanted to move the stone down, it would follow a track and roll in. The purpose of it was so that you can't move it. I mean, we're not talking about just kind of inching a stone out of the way. We're talking about a giant boulder. And to get in, you'd have to push it up a hill to get there. That would be enough. But the original language here doesn't say that the stone had just simply been rolled back up the track. It said that it had been lifted. The image is that it had been removed from the track altogether and tossed aside. It's not just like, well, there was about this far, and if you're really skinny, you can... It is gone. It is gone. So that when she walked up to the tomb, and remember at the beginning, she didn't even look in. She walked up to the tomb and she's like... What happened here? This woman had watched Jesus' body placed in that cave Friday afternoon. She watched that stone seal it up. She may have even been there when the Roman guards came back and put the wax seal of Rome on it to say, you mess with this, we kill you. But now the rock is tossed aside and the body is gone. Peter and John, she goes and tells them, they immediately run to the tomb and see that, uh, that they find it exactly as she says, but more. Look down at verse 5 to 6. It says that they look into the tomb. Peter goes first. He actually goes in, right? They, they see the, the linens. Now, when you say linens, um, man, I, I hate to put it this way. The closest thing we think of is like a mummy, okay? Like you would wrap a body in linens stuffed with, like, um, with herbs and spices to, to help with the smell, okay? So... Um, and they would, they would put it in there. And the whole point of why Mary's going to the tomb is because Jesus had to be taken out and buried so fast they didn't have time to dress the body pop properly, to actually put the, the, the spices and all that stuff in. So she's going back, along with some others, to, to finish the job. So the linens would have been wrapped around him, grave cloths. They're, they're wrapped around. They find the linens just laying there. And then, like I said, the face cloth, which there was another one, it wasn't the Shroud of Turin, okay? But there, there was another one that was laying across his face that they found not with the rest of them, but gently, neatly folded in its own little place off to the side. This is bizarro land. This is not like, oh, huh, cool. Like, some of us are probably thinking right now, like, come on, Rick. 
Of course they believed this. Primitive people believed lots of crazy things, okay? Maybe. But here's what these people didn't believe when they saw this. Jesus has been risen from the dead! That's the, not what they thought. Okay, why? Because even ancient people know you don't come back from the dead. Dead is dead. You don't come back. If you were making this up, if someone has taken this and they're like, I'm going to make up a story that's going to tell how my, my leader that I, I was hoping was going to give me power actually died and then he rose again from the dead. If you were making this up, the last thing you would want to say is this, that no one had any idea this was coming. The last thing you would want to say is, we were all fools, which is exactly what they're saying. No one in this story has any clue what is happening. Mary says twice, I don't know. Like I said, John says of himself and Peter, we didn't know. If you were creating a wonderful story of make-believe about how your leader rose from death, you would not highlight your own ignorance of it. But, but you see, these three are confused because they are stuck in the dark of Friday. Here's what I mean. First century Jews, of which all of these folks are, they had certain expectations of things, of the way they had expectations for Jesus. And those expectations were shattered just days before. Because as first century Jews, they believed the story that the Bible tells. That, that God created the world, including us. He created us good in a state called shalom or peace, which, which doesn't just mean that we weren't fighting. It means that all of the relationships of the world were lined up perfectly without any conflict. Right? That you could actually exist in a relationship with someone else without ever having conflict, without ever being wounded, because it was perfect. Our relationship with God was perfect. There was nothing between us. Our relationship with creation was perfect. Creation actually responded to us. Shalom. Okay? But it says that the world didn't stay that way. Because though we were created, you and I were created to be in a dependent relationship with God, we betrayed him. We sought our own independence from him. And when we did, everything went wrong. That looked like a couple of things. First and foremost, we became guilty before God. Now, that, that may offend some of us, like this, this guilt thing. But look, when you betray someone, that's what happens. You know this. You've been betrayed. You've done the betraying. We all know this. It happens. Guilt happens. But we also entered into a state that all of humanity now exists. And the Bible calls that state sin. Now that has a lot of connotations to it to us. But here's, here's what that means. It means that we are now fundamentally, by our very nature, seeking independence from God. Right? You don't become a sinner. Biblically, like Gaga said, baby, you're born this way. Like, this is the way you are born. We, we sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin, right? And because of both of these things, because we are guilty and, and fundamentally sinners by nature, that now we are separated from God and unable to get back to him. But God, right where we fell, promised to, to restore us to himself, to reconcile us, to draw us back. He would come and deal with our sin. Bring us back to himself. And he would do it ultimately through a family of a dude named Abraham. And that family came to be called Israel. Okay? Now we've walked through about half of the Bible. So let's keep going. Now here's the problem. By Jesus' day, um, Jews had an expectation of how that was going to happen. And it was influenced by the Old Testament. And it would basically go like this. God is going to um, come and bring a king 
who will conquer their enemies and give them back their kingdom. Now, they had come to that because God did say, I'm going to raise up a king from the family of Abraham, from the family of David. Like, he's going to come from this. He's going to be a king. He is going to defeat your enemies. But the problem is they began to believe that their enemies were external to them. That their, their problem wasn't anything going on in them. Their problem was their circumstances. And primarily, the fact that they had this group of pagans called Romans who were ruling them, who hated God. When God's people begin to believe that the fundamental problem of the world is not in their hearts, but in their rulers, something has happened wrong. Okay? And so, they thought that God's king would come, see how good they were, and he would make their lives better. And they thought Jesus would be that king. I mean, heck, he said he was the king. It's a whole donkey thing, running into Jerusalem, palms and all this stuff. If you're a Christian, like... That's what that was about. He is the king that the Old Testament said was coming, but there was one problem. On Friday, he died. God's king died. How is he going to kill the Romans if the Romans killed him? Their expectations were shattered. He didn't get on board with their assumptions of what God must be like, what they needed, how things should all play out. Because even Jesus said, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he said, look, He brought his his guys together. He said, dudes, I'm going to die and rise again. And they were so keen on what he was saying. They're walking away. And literally the Gospel of Mark says they walk away going, what do you think he meant when he said rise from the dead? I don't know. Maybe that he was going to rise from the dead. But the problem is their expectations were such that wasn't even a possibility. No one would have expected God's Messiah to die and rise again from the dead. No one. They are confused because nobody saw this dealing with the problem that they thought they had. They are stuck in the dark of Friday. But that brings us to the state of grief. Look down at verses 11 to 14. The two apostles leave and Mary is standing outside of the tomb weeping. Now listen. Let's be honest. Let's just say it up front. Most of us in this room are white folks. And white folks don't like emotion. We don't do emotion. We, we don't do, like, and so when we hear that she, she's weeping, what we think is, she, her eyes are welling up with tears. Oh. No. This woman is wailing. This is the kind of weeping that happens at a funeral. And if you have ever been to a funeral, and in, um, if you've ever even heard of funerals in the ancient Near East, like, people are literally wailing at the top of their lungs. This woman is wailing. She is full-out grieving. And there are a couple reasons for this. First and foremost, look, Jesus meant a lot to her. And what I mean by that is not the fanciful illusion of Dan Brown and Da Vinci Code, okay? Like, what I don't mean is that the two of them were lovers. That is, that is a crazy story that didn't even first come into even certain people saying it until like three or four centuries after Jesus died. That is not history. That is fiction, okay? What I mean is that we, what we know of, of Mary is that Jesus delivered her, it's, it says, from demon possession, for which she was so grateful that she was willing to break all kinds of social convention and break into a party that she was not invited to with a bunch of people who would have looked down on her and scorned her to do an act that no one would understand simply because she loved the dude. He did everything for her. 
But secondly, not only did he mean a lot to her, let me suggest that this grief is born out of dashed hopes. All of these people that we have in this story, Mary, John, Peter, they have all spent significant time with Jesus, and they have seen him do significant things. If we're to take the Gospels at their word, we have seen him heal people from sickness, make food multiply to feed thousands of people on five loaves and a couple of fish. We have even seen him, they they would have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And these were not random events. They were all parts of the broken world. Sickness, um, hunger, death. They were all parts of a broken world that God said His King would come and mend. And in Jesus, it was finally happening. You know, many of us think miracles were just some random events to wow the crowd, like Jesus is some kind of wonder worker, right? But that's not it at all. What Jesus was doing was mending the world that we have torn apart. He was mending it. But in the end, he died. And their hopes died with him. The dark of Friday saw an end of their hopes. And it saw terrible grief. But lastly, that leaves us to the state of alienation. Look down at verses 13 and then on to 15. I don't know if you noticed this, because again, these stories are so familiar to us. Did you notice how little regarded Mary is throughout this entire story? she, She goes to get Peter and John. To tell them something. And they take off running. They don't even start, they don't even say any words to her. They just take off. She gets to the tomb. Um, and and once, the, once the apostles, Peter and John, are done doing what they do, they don't say anything more to her. They just leave her. She's there at the tomb again by herself. And then, even when she's spoken to, the first two times she's spoken to, she's not called by name. She's anonymous. She's woman. Mary is completely alone in this story. And for someone like Mary, this had to be a harsh reminder of how things were. Because look, like I said, the scriptures don't tell us much about Mary, but what it does tell us says a lot. Mark 16, which is Mark's, the gospel of Mark's account of the same thing, says that Jesus drove seven demons out of this woman. Okay, Now, some of us here find that ridiculous and want to come up with another explanation, but but here's, here's what we see of those in the New Testament who have a demon, okay? First and foremost, um, this is what it would have been like for someone who it was described as having a demon. They were ostracized. No one wanted to be around them. They were viewed as dangerous. Uh, they were often prone to self-abuse, right? There was one dude who lived in tombs. He lived in a graveyard and used to cut himself the rocks, howl at the moon. No one could bind him. They tried to put him in chains. They thought he was dangerous. He broke them all. The bottom line is, if you were described as having demons, no one wanted to be around you. And that's just what we're told from Scripture. Tradition tells us, right? And this isn't, we don't know this to be gospel truth at all. But tradition would tell us that, that Mary Magdalene um, was, was a prostitute, right? That her life was jacked. Even, even the description of her having seven demons, right? In, in, the, in the Bible, the word seven tends to communicate fullness, which is probably Mark's way of saying, this chick was full of bad. She was as, her life was as jacked as you can get until Jesus came on the scene. Because when Jesus came on the scene, her life changed dramatically. The rest of what we know about her is that she is with Jesus and with the other followers. She's not ostracized anymore. She's been brought in. 
close enough that those who were nearest to Jesus, the women who were nearest to Jesus, she would go with them to the tomb to complete the work of love, to dress the body. Mary, of all people, saw in Jesus the hope for her inclusion. And now, not only is she alone in terms of people aren't with her, people aren't even talking to her as Mary, they're calling her woman, she can't even find the body anymore. In this story, Mary is desperately alone. Everyone else in her past saw her as a broken person. Jesus called her friend and released her from that past, but he is gone. He is dead. And now she has returned to being alienated, being anonymous. Mary had looked to Jesus to make things different, but Friday saw an end to that and a return to her alienation. Some of us know exactly what that's like. If we end the story here, look, let's be honest, as some of us in this room think we should, we leave without hope. But friends, it is Easter. And I'm here to tell you that something different has happened. The night has passed and the new day has dawned. So that the dark of of confusion has given away to the dawn of understanding. Look at verse 16. In verse 14, we're told that Jesus appears to Mary, right? But, But she's turned her back. I want you to think of it this way. Tomb's here. She's looking in. She sees two angels. Still doesn't know what to do with that. Okay? She's still weeping. She turns and sees someone. Now, more than likely, what we're, what we're told here is she's probably still got her back turned to this person. She's kind of glimpsed them, maybe their feet, but she's weeping. You know, she doesn't want to be seen. And so she thinks he's the gardener. And he asks her the same thing the angels did. Woman, why are you weeping? Who, who are you seeking? And she says to them, if you've carried him off, tell me where and I will go get him. And Jesus says her name and suddenly everything changes. You see, we are often told, especially in our culture, that the followers of Jesus, that they made up this story or they hallucinated it based on their expectations from the Old Testament. But consistently in the accounts that we are given, the only accounts that we are given, what what we see is the only thing, and and quite frankly, the only thing that makes makes sense historically is that they didn't get anything until they saw Jesus. But when they saw Jesus, then it made sense out of the Scriptures. Because you and I cannot figure out God on our own. You may think you can. Like, look, I'm a spiritual person, and I just kind of think what the the Bible would tell us is that God must reveal himself to us. Of course he must. He's a person. You and I can know a lot about a, a person by watching them. But you can't know a person intimately unless they reveal themselves to you. God must reveal himself to us. You can't get to God and what he is about by thinking really hard. But to get that, we got to get back to the story. Because listen, according to the Bible, our problem is that all of us by nature are guilty of betraying God by seeking independence from him. Now, that is offensive to most of us. That should be offensive to all of us. Okay, so let me let me explain. You and I tend to think that God gets angry at us because we're not good, right? And some of us try really hard to be good, and others of us just convinced, I can't be, so I'm just going to go do whatever I want, right? And so we're convinced that God will be happy with us if we're good. If, if we, we, you know, I, I say this often here at Holy Cross, so some of you will be familiar with this, but we, we, we look at God, and we understand him, we understand um, making things right with him very much like we understand outrunning the bear, right? If you're in the woods, 
and a bear is chasing you, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the other dude that's next to you. Right? And that's the way we look at things. We think, as long as I outrun the guy to my left, and I'm a little better than the guy to my left, God will get him and he'll leave me alone. And since we all have an overinflated view of ourselves, we tend to think, I'm way better than the dude on my left. Or at least if I, as long as I get to pick the dude on my left. Right? At least I'm not like so-and-so. But the Bible says that you and I are hopelessly broken. It describes our state using the word dead. That we are dead in our transgressions. Not bad in our transgressions and sins, but dead in them. Your independence, friend, may look like your life is a train wreck, right? It may look like Mary Magdalene's. Or it may look like the Apostle Paul's. Who, before he became a Christian, he said, like, I was the most religious, moral, straight-laced dude that ever existed. And Jesus showed up on the scene and said, this ain't working, bro. Like, we're not doing this. So long as you are doing either one of those things, apart from God, independent of God, I don't care how good it is, it is dead. And you cannot fix independence independently, and you cannot fix dead with good. Right? But, but friends, this is why Jesus came. Look, we think, tend to think, that Jesus came to give us good teaching, and he came to give us some good ways to do things, maybe give us an ethic of love, whatever we tend to mean by that. But that isn't it at all. We are stuck in our guilt, and so Jesus came to rescue us from it. That's what the cross is about. That's what Friday was about. That is what Jesus' death was all about. Now, some of you are probably thinking, like, okay, here he goes. This is what I, I, here's the whole angry God thing. He's going to start pounding on the pulpit next and frothing at the mouth. Like, wait, just, just wait a second, because you've probably missed what this is about. If that's what you're thinking, you've missed what this is all about. Forgiveness isn't pretending that something didn't happen. That's not forgiveness. Look, some time ago now, I left my garage door open one night, and um, somebody came along and jacked my bike. Okay, like my bicycle. It was a nice one. It was custom. Um, I was getting into road biking. It was really nice. Um, If you were to come to me and tell me that that was you, I have a choice. I can either get back from you, either the bike, the couple grand that it cost, or some other punitive cost, right? I could take it out some way. Or... Like, and, and if we do that, if we do one of those things, we can call that, we'll call that justice, right? I got what was due me. Or, I can forgive you, which means that I bear the cost of the bike. I'm still out of bike. I've still, there's still an empty bike rack in my garage. Nothing, ha- well, actually a stroller is now hanging on it. <laughs> there should be a bike there, and now there's a stroller. But the point is this. Okay, come back to me. The point is this. Someone has got to bear the cost of the bike. Either the one who stole it will or I will. Someone bears the weight of the offense, either the betrayer or the betrayed. And so that's what the cross is about. In Jesus, God came to bear the judgment that we deserve in our place. And that is why he had to die. That is what no one seemed to get at the time. They thought, I'm doing pretty good. My circumstances need to change. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. 
if your sin isn't taken care of, you will be lost. If he didn't die, then we are left in our sin. But suddenly, with one word out of Jesus' mouth, realization hits. Jesus is risen. The night is past and the new day is dawned. And that brings us to the strange part in verse 17, where the, the night of grief falls away to the dawn of joy. Look, look there if you can. Mary sees Jesus. She hears him call her. She turns around and she grabs the dude. Like She's like, boom. She's got to have him. And, and, and then he says, like, don't hold on to me. Like, I haven't ascended to my father yet, all right? What the heck is going on here? Okay, first and foremost, we have to understand, if Mary turned and grabbed Jesus, that means he was physically there. This is not a spirit or a ghost or, or she's like tripping. You know, like, she literally, he's there and she grabbed him. When Jesus rose, it was bodily. Listen to me. Think with me for a second. 30 seconds ago, all of Mary's hopes were dead in the grave. And with a word, they have come back to life. And she turns and grabs him out of joy. Look, if Jesus is risen, then that means that he is the bearer of our hopes. You and I look around at the the world. We look around in our own homes. We look around in our own hearts. And we know that something isn't right. And we think... What we can do to make it right is to get enough money or enough power or enough pleasure or or maybe enough acceptance and approval or love, you know, or or people thinking well of us or, or enough success and that that will take care of it. But the reality is it can't. And you know this. You know this because you've tried. I know you have because so did I. And you've tried and it's never enough. When will your bankroll get to be enough? When will your promotions get to be enough? When will the amount of people who fawn over you be enough that you won't need the next one and the next one and the next one? It's never enough. Mary had placed her hopes in Jesus. He was the one through whom the world would be made right, but then he died. Once again, death seemed to be the ultimate power in the universe. Like, death won, power won, Rome won. But with a word, Jesus reversed it all. He had conquered the one enemy that no one had ever beaten. No one beats death, except Jesus. And when he says, don't hold on to me, look, I wish sometimes we were given video instead of a story because you add inflection into what you read, right? That's why email is a very bad way to communicate, okay? But the point is that he is not chiding her. He is letting her know, I'm not going anywhere yet. You don't have to hold on to me. I'm here for a while. I haven't yet ascended. It's okay. It's all going to be okay. Friends, listen to me. We were made to place our hopes in something. We constantly look for something to fill us. The Bible says the only thing that can fill us is the one we were made for, God. You weren't made for stuff. You weren't made for for money or for power. You were made for him. Jesus conquered sin and death, and he is worthy of your hopes. Jesus is risen. The night of grief has passed, and the new day of joy has dawned. And that leaves us finally with the dawn of reconciliation. 
Jesus says to Mary, go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Now let me let you in on something. In the ancient world, if you were going to write this wonderful make-believe story of, of how your, your once dead leader came, came back to life, the last person you would have had as the first witness to it would have been a woman. Especially a woman with a checkered past. Because you and I exist in a world where it's very different. But during that day, women's testimony wasn't even admissible in a court. She's the last person you would want to have be your first witness. The first person Jesus wanted. This is what we have. And these words that Jesus says to her are are poignant. He says, these, these brothers that Jesus is sending Mary to are the very ones who denied him. The very ones who abandoned him when things got really hairy Thursday evening. And he sends her to Peter, who literally told Jesus that, dude, I'm going to die with you. They come for you, I'm swinging. And, and as soon as they came, uh, you know, a, a few hours later, he's, he's cursing at himself and cursing at people, saying, I don't know the guy. How much do I have to tell you? I don't know him. I don't know him. Leave me alone. Jesus says, go back to those people, my brothers, These aren't good people, successful people, upstanding people. Jesus did not come to commend us for doing good. Jesus came to rescue us. Look, this is the beauty of Christianity. No matter where you are this morning with Christianity and and understanding of that, let me clear something up. Jesus did not come to give you a to-do list. right? That's what we often think. That's what religion's about. Jesus came to give me a to-do list. He came to tell me the right things to do. We think that because that's what every other religion tells us. Here are five pillars, or an eightfold path, or seven steps to divinity, or whatever. Christianity does not tell you all that you need to do to get to God. Listen to me. The Christian gospel does not tell you everything you need to do to get to God. It tells you everything God did to get to you. That is what the Christian message is. Jesus came... To live the life we couldn't because we can't be good enough to make God be nice to us. He came to die the death that we deserve because you cannot make up for all of your failures. I cannot make up for all of my failures by trying really hard. And then he rose for us. And this is where the independence thing comes back in. God in Jesus offers us reconciliation with him as a gift to receive. Not as a task to achieve. We receive it by faith, taking our hopes from whatever we've put them in and placing them on Jesus. And when we do, by grace, by grace, which means it's a free gift, it's not something you earn, by grace alone we are made right with God. He is not just Jesus' Father, but Jesus says, go tell them that I am ascending to my Father and now to your Father, to my God and now to your God. He adopts us into His family. Friends, you and I... uh, cannot make ourselves right before God. This is why Christianity is so offensive. It strikes against our pride. We can't make ourselves right before God. We can't. But God isn't asking us to. He's calling us to leave our independence, to turn from it and place our faith in Christ. God is not a power to submit to. He is a person to know. And when we do, though we have betrayed God every day because of the life, the death, and praise God because of the resurrection of Jesus... We are made children of God. Jesus is risen. The dark night has passed. The new day has dawned. Would you pray with me?
Lord, in your resurrection, you made all things new. You have made all things new. And so I ask that you would bring that newness to bear on us today. Whether we are in this room and we've been walking with Jesus and and been Christians for, for decades, or whether we are walking in this room and this is the first time we have ever even been asked to consider Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would bring, bring that newness of life to bear. Those of us who are stuck in our struggles with habitual sin, that you would give us the power through the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus to leave those. For those of us who, who are stuck in our unbelief, I pray that you would give us power by the, the Spirit of God to see Christ as larger than our doubts. Jesus, you have conquered sin and death and hell for us, and we give you great praise. There is nothing more to say except amen and amen.